Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series from the book of Acts. We are presently in part four of what will ultimately be 12 parts as we cover the entire 28 chapters of the book of Acts. As always, I want to mention if we have any newcomers that all of the notes and all of the audio recordings for these studies are available in a variety of ways. You can go to the website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and download any of the studies that you may want, either the notes or the recordings. You can also join us live by telephone or also on the internet at mixlr.com, and you follow the broadcast name of New Life Ministries. You can also subscribe on your smartphone or other devices uh, to the New Life Ministries podcast. That way you automatically get any new uh, notes or recordings as they are uploaded. Um, So you don't have to do very much. They automatically come to your phone. All right, we are on page 53, if you are following along in the notes. And in this fourth part, uh, we're looking at the growth of the early church. And of course, the church was born on the day of Pentecost. And this church that we're looking at is confined primarily to Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, The first ten years, give or take a year or two, of church history are restricted to Jerusalem. So what we're looking at in these chapters is the growth of the Jerusalem church. And eventually, they would follow the Lord's directive in Acts 1-8 to go first to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. But in these first years, we're concentrated primarily in the confines of Jerusalem. And we've already seen that after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the church began to grow very rapidly. Thousands of souls were responding to the Word of God, getting saved, taking water baptism, receiving the Holy Spirit, and the church in Jerusalem began to grow more and more, and as we've been pointing out, as the church grows, there's always persecution. And with miracles, we've seen, come persecution. So, after the amazing miracle of the cripple who was healed at the gate to the temple, Peter and John were put into prison, And upon their release from prison, they went back to the church, back to the believers, and there they lifted up a prayer to the Lord. And this is where we want to pick up from last time. Um, In Acts 4, verses 29 and 30. Now, remember, they've just been released from prison. They've been threatened by the religious leaders, the religious establishment, to stop talking about Jesus, to stop preaching the good news of Christ. So we might imagine that the prayer would be for their safety, for their protection, that somehow they might avoid getting into any more trouble with the religious establishment. But the prayer is just the opposite. And let's read this again. When they lifted up their voices in prayer, here's what they asked. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, it was a miracle 
that had gotten the apostles in trouble in the first place. The healing of the cripple at the gate beautiful, that's what got them in trouble. And now they're asking for more miracles. Not only are they asking for more miracles, it was their boldness that got them in trouble. Remember, they were very outspoken. Uh, they didn't use political correctness. And because of their frankness and boldness of speech, it landed them in jail. Now, they're not only asking for more miracles, they're asking for more boldness. And in other words... After being imprisoned, after being threatened, when they are out of prison, they're basically praying, Lord, don't let us be intimidated by any of these threats. Make us even more bold now to keep proclaiming your word, to keep preaching Jesus Christ, and keep confirming your word with even more miracles. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. I like this. This is good stuff. And we, we need to make a decision in these last days. We're going to be persecuted. It's not popular to be a Christian in these last days. And we're going to meet with resistance we're going to meet with opposition, maybe from the religious establishment, maybe even from the government. But we've already seen that we have to be very careful to focus our allegiance on the highest authority. We're not advocating rebellion or disobedience to authority, but we must understand that obedience is always directed to the highest authority. We have to obey God rather than men when there's a difference in what they are telling us to do. We have been given commandments by Almighty God. And even though the lawmakers, the civil authorities may be telling us to do something different, we must obey God first and foremost. And so, if the government is telling us you can't preach, it's against the law to preach, well, there's a problem. God has already commanded us to go into all the world with the gospel. So, governments, yes, they may pass uh, laws against preaching, against converting anyone. Let them pass all the laws they want. We are under a higher law. We must proclaim Christ. We must preach the word and let the consequences come, whatever they may be. But in the meantime, we can join the early church in praying, Lord, give us even more boldness. Help us to speak your word with great boldness, not with political correctness, but with great boldness. And confirm that word with signs, wonders, and miracles following. Well, God didn't waste any time in answering that prayer. In the next verse, in verse 31 of Acts 4, we see God's response. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The place where they were meeting was shaken after they prayed, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, how the churches need this kind of prayer now. The book of James, chapter 5, verse 16, tells us the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know, in the Old Testament, incense was continually burning in the tabernacle. And incense is a type of prayer. But we often miss something. 
the fragrance of the incense is only released in fire. It has to be burned. And we need a fervent prayer. It means a burning prayer. We need some fire in our bones, some fire in our hearts and in our spirits. God deliver us from lukewarm, half-hearted, half-asleep praying. May the Holy Spirit stir us up to pray with heated, fiery, fervent prayers. God, set our hearts on fire, set our hearts ablaze, so that when we pray, the fragrance of the incense rises up before your throne. How we need prayers that shake the place where we are meeting. A, a house-rattling, church-shaking kind of a prayer. And these are the prayers that God answers. The effectual or the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It produces answers. It produces a response from heaven. And we also need, not just once upon a time on the day of Pentecost, but regularly the church needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is not a one-time experience. We get filled over and over and over with the Holy Spirit. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, yes, we become bold. We speak the Word of God boldly. Now, in the book of Acts, there are at least seven instances where people were filled or said to be full of the Holy Spirit. And they were filled for various purposes. Or that filling with the Holy Spirit produced different results. On three occasions, Acts 2-4, the first time when they were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and again, Acts 4-8, we saw when Peter was speaking, and here, when they prayed to be able to speak with more boldness, in each one of these three instances, they were filled with the Holy Spirit so that they could speak, whether it was speaking in other languages or speaking boldly. Three times we, we see here they were filled with the Spirit for speaking. In Acts 6 verse 3 we will come to another instance where they were filled with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of serving even to wait on tables, to be deacons in the early church. You had to be full of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 11.24, we see that they were filled with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of ministry. There's no ministry that can be done properly unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 13.9, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of rebuking, rebuking a man named Bar-Jesus, a false prophet. And then, finally, in Acts 7.55, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of dying. He was the first martyr in the early church, and God filled him with the Holy Spirit as they were pelting him with stones, and as he gave up his spirit to God in heaven, he died full of the Holy Spirit. So we need to be filled regularly with the Holy Spirit. Our churches need to be shaken with the power of God as we pray fervently, as we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, and as we speak the Word of God boldly. Let's continue in Acts 4, reading from verse 32 
down to the end of the chapter, Acts 4.32 to 37. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a couple of things that we see here that we've already seen in Acts chapter 2. There was this amazing fellowship sharing, oneness, koinonia, amongst all of the believers in the early church, to the point that they were literally sharing everything that they had together. And I want to read verse 32 again. All the believers, all, not most, all of the believers, were one in heart, and mind. I cannot underestimate the importance of this. Real Christianity only works when we have the same heart and the same mind. It's amazing how easily things can take place when we all have the same heart and the same mind. We're in agreement. There's no conflict. There's no contention. There are no quarrelings and fightings. Everybody believes the same way. Everybody is thinking the same way. Everybody has the same basic mindset. And notice the depth of this unity. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. This was real fellowship. This wasn't just in word only. It was in deed. It was in possessions. They were sharing everything together. And because of that kind of unity, as we proceed further along in the book of Acts, they will eventually have some conflicts, some disagreements, some situations that they had to work together and find solutions for. But so long as they were all seeking God, their hearts and their minds were open to God, it was very easy for the Lord to maintain a oneness in heart and mind. In an orchestra, if every instrument is tuned to the same note, they're automatically in tune with one another. And the analogy is true in the church as well. If all of us are in tune with the Lord, if we're in tune with His Spirit, if we're in tune with the Word of God, then it keeps all of us in tune with one another. We have the same heart, we have the same mind, the same God is speaking to all of us. And that's what we see here. <clears throat> Notice again the emphasis on the apostolic ministry. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 
And as people were literally coming and selling houses and lands and bringing the money, the proceeds from those sales, it's very specific in verse 35 and again in verse 37. All of that money was being handled by the apostles. Now, I would like to posit several reasons why it was the apostles who were in charge of all this money. First of all, they had left everything. They had already sold everything. They'd left their fishing boats, left their tax tables and their businesses. They had forsaken all to follow Christ. They didn't want anything. So they could be trusted with everything. There was no fear that these apostles were going to pocket some of the money themselves. They had already given all their money away. Why would they want to do that? And the importance of the apostolic ministry continues to impress me more and more as time goes along. God must have a group of people who don't want anything. The problem arises when we have people who want something. James 4 tells us that's where all strife and contention and confusion comes from, and every evil work. It comes from selfish ambition, from covetousness, from greed, from people who want something, be it money, or position, or power, or fame, or you can fill in the blanks, but the apostles had left everything, so they wanted nothing, and therefore they could be easily entrusted, even with large amounts of money that were coming in now, from the sale of houses and lands. Just a side note, I've mentioned this in previous studies, how different this is from the modern church, where there's so much emphasis on raising money, making money, buying lands, buying and building expensive temples. You find nothing of the sort in the entire book of Acts. You can search from chapter 1 to 28. There's no mention of building funds, buying lands, building multi-million dollar lavish temples for the Lord. Matter of fact, the only thing we find about houses and lands is what we just read. They were selling them, not buying them. They met in houses, they met in schools, synagogues, wherever they could find a space to meet. Sometimes they met out by, by the river. Didn't matter. And I'm, I'm very concerned with the direction the modern church has taken now, with all this emphasis on buildings, temples, money, and sadly, rather than having an apostolic ministry that has left everything and wants nothing, the pastors of churches end up being more like CEOs of multi-million dollar corporations. And we have teams of lawyers and accountants and financial boards that have to manage the massive amounts of money that many of these ministries accumulate. And we end up with famous TV celebrities that live in multi-million dollar mansions and have fleets of jets and, and all this foolishness. This is so far away from the church I read about in the book of Acts that we have to make a decision. Are we going to follow the Lord and do it His way? Or are we going to follow the world and do what most other churches are doing? And... I'm afraid if we go the way of the world, we lose what these apostles had. They had great power. There was great power on these apostles to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace 
was upon them. And we already read in chapter 2 that the Lord was confirming their ministry with many miraculous signs and wonders. Notice again verse 33, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. (coughs) Great power, great grace was upon these men of God. Verse 34 again, it says, there were no needy persons in this early church. That's quite a statement. No needy persons. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money to the apostles, and the apostles distributed that money according to need. Now, I need to pause for a minute and talk about this, because some have even used scriptures like this to validate modern socialism or even communism and say, well, it's biblical. Not so fast. I've made a list here in your notes of some distinct differences between what was happening here in the early church and socialism or communism. Let's go through a few of these. First of all, the sale of property was voluntary. (laughs) Modern socialism, which they've even been trying to employ here in the United States, it's never voluntary. It's something that the government elites force upon us quite against our own wills, and money is taken from the rich and given to those that the government deems worthy of that money, quite different from what was happening here. Uh, This money was not distributed by the government. It was distributed, again, by an apostolic team whom Jesus had handpicked. They had been called and chosen by God anointed with great grace and great power. They had left everything in the world, so they wanted nothing. They were the ones entrusted with the responsibility of distributing this money. Note a couple of other differences between what was happening here in the book of Acts and modern socialism or communism. The right of possession... In other words, the right for Barnabas or Joe or Harry or Bill to own property was not abolished. It was perfectly legal for anyone in these days of the early church to own a house, to own property. Not so in in a communist regime. You forfeit all rights of possession. Another difference, in the case of the book of Acts, this believing, redeemed community of saints, they did not control the money until it had been voluntarily given and given specifically to the apostles, not to the entire community. The apostles were the ones who made distribution of this money. They would have had wisdom, they would have had discernment, they would have had no selfish interests in the distribution of this money, so all they were looking for was genuine need. (coughs) There's a somewhat sarcastic play on this whole story that has been written by one F.E. Marsh, uh, and it's, it's humorous, but it's also kind of sad, because I think it, it hits a nerve here that shows how far the modern church has moved away from the early church. 
Let me quote what he writes here. One has said, in contrasting the early church with the Christianity of today, is it not a solemn thought that if the evangelist Luke were describing modern instead of primitive Christianity, he would have to vary the phraseology of Acts 4, 32-35, somewhat as follows. And here's the exact quote. And the multitude of them that professed were of hard heart and stony soul, and everyone said that all the things which he possessed were his own. And they had all things in the fashion, and with great power gave they witness to the attractions of this world, and great selfishness was upon them all. And there were many among them that lacked love, for as many as were possessors of lands bought more, and sometimes gave a small part thereof for a public good, so that their names were heralded in the newspapers, and distribution of praise was made to everyone according as he desired. Well, God help us to move back to the Acts model, where they shared all things in common, they had genuine love and charity in their hearts for people in need. They didn't wait for the government to take care of the needy. You know, we've basically come to a welfare state here in the United States of America where we have multiplied millions, over 50 million people, who are basically dependent on the state for their welfare. They have all kinds of handouts that they depend on the government for. Now, I'm not against somebody in need getting help. But here's the caveat. It's really the church's responsibility, not the government's, to take care of the needy. And because the church has, in large part, failed to do its job because of this kind of selfishness and stinginess of heart, well, it's now defaulted to the government's hands to take care of the needy. It's not right. It's not right. The the church, one of its foremost callings in the world, is to take care of the poor. And that's why we try to regularly collect monies and distribute them to other ministries that are taking care of the poor, giving money away, in many cases, to poor and needy. This is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the selling of lands and properties that we just read about here is important for three reasons. Number one, it demonstrates the genuineness, the genuineness, sorry, of the love these believers had in the early church and the seriousness of their commitment to follow Christ. This was obviously not a shallow commitment. This was serious. My goodness. They had people selling their houses and giving the money away. That's serious. Now, here's an interesting side note before we go any further. This is taking place approximately around 35 A.D., possibly even 40 A.D., somewhere in that time range. In another 30 years, 70 A.D., the entire city of Jerusalem will be burned to the ground by Titus, emperor of Rome. At that point, it doesn't matter how much land you own, how many houses you own, you're going to lose it all anyway, because the Jews were scattered to the four corners of the earth. 
They had to leave all of their lands, all of their houses behind as they scattered into the different parts of the earth. So God in his wisdom was having them sell their lands and their houses now before they would basically be forfeiting all rights to these houses and lands. Now, of course, he didn't tell them that. They were doing it out of love. And they were also doing it because the apostles had already set an example. They had already sold everything, literally sold everything, got rid of all their junk, all of their possessions, so that they could follow Christ. Secondly, what we just read about here, as I mentioned, it reinforces the centrality of the apostles in the early church and the apostolic ministry. God not only gave them great power, great grace, great authority to work signs, wonders, and miracles and boldly testify to the resurrected Christ, but God entrusted them with large sums of money and entrusted them to use wisdom in the distribution thereof. Thirdly, and this is sort of a pretext for where we're going next in the book of Acts, the selling of lands serves as a backdrop for something that we're going to read about in the next chapter, the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. So we first see people who were doing it with a sincere heart. They were doing it for the right reasons. In chapter 5, we're going to read of a couple who did it the wrong way, and they did it with evil hearts. One more thing to point out here before we proceed into Acts 5, we're introduced to a very important character. And I've come to love this character more and more as I've been studying through the book of Acts. We know him as Barnabas, but he's first introduced here by his real name, Joseph. He's Joseph, a Levite, from Cyprus. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He's originally from Cyprus, but for whatever reasons, he's now in Jerusalem. Perhaps, as we mentioned earlier, he had come there uh, for the Passover or Pentecost celebration or to visit relatives. We're just not told why he's there, but he's in Jerusalem. And we learn a couple of other interesting things about this Joseph. He's from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. His name Joseph is replaced by a name given him by the apostles. That's interesting. This man must have made quite an impression on the apostles for them to have given him a new name, Barnabas, and we're told the interpretation of that name is son of encouragement, or son of consolation, is what some of the Bibles read. This Joseph, Barnabas, is one of the ones that sells a field, and brings the money, and puts it at the apostles' feet. Now, we're going to come back and talk a lot more about Barnabas, but let me sort of lay out an outline here so that you can begin to understand the importance of this man and the fact that he's introduced to us first here because of his selling of his land and giving the money to the apostles. He would later be called an apostle in Acts 14. Matter of fact, he and Saul, later to be called Paul, would be the first two apostles sent out from the Antioch church, 
on a Gentile mission. He was one of the first, um, in, one of the first to introduce Paul to the other apostles. When we come to Acts nine and we read about the conversion of Saul, aka Paul, uh, even after his conversion, the other apostles in Jerusalem were very fearful of this man, and they were kind of doubtful as to the sincerity of his conversion and his faith. It was Barnabas who had to take Paul and reassure the other apostles, he's one of us, he's genuine, he's a true believer now. And as I mentioned, he would ultimately be an important companion with Paul on his apostolic missionary journeys. So, he was to become an apostle, and the fact that he's given the name Son of Encouragement tells us something about the character of the man. And we'll see this in some other verses that we'll read about Barnabas. He was a great encourager in the early church. He had a very special ministry of encouraging people and just really pointing people to the grace of God, pointing people to remain true to the Lord, and he had a very wonderful ministry. Now, a question that sometimes comes up, why would a Levite have any land to sell? According to Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 18, when God separated the Levites, God was to be their sole inheritance, and they were not to own any land. They were to be free from any such attachments to this world. So, it's not real clear how Barnabas, a Levite, had land to sell. There are several theories, and that's all they are. It's possible that because he was from Cyprus, a country outside of Israel, it's a foreign land, it's possible that those regulations didn't apply to foreign lands outside of Israel. We don't know. Another theory that I've read about is it's possible the land had been his wife's property. She didn't necessarily have to be a Levite. Perhaps she had some land or an inheritance, and together they agreed they wanted to sell it and lay it down at the apostles' feet. It's not a huge concern, but it's a question that sometimes comes up. <clears throat> Back to the man, Barnabas. In Acts 11, verses 23 and 24, we read, When he, Barnabas, arrived, and this is in Antioch, when he arrived there and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all. Interesting. He encouraged them all. Remember what his name means? Son of encouragement. So, the apostles obviously recognized this grace in Barnabas from the time they first met him, that he had this ministry of encouraging people. And so, we see that played out here in the Antioch church, where he became uh, the leader of the whole church. He was glad and encourage them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. <clears throat> so we can see a real ministry developing now in Barnabas's life, and when we come to Acts 13, we'll see that in the Antioch church, he and Saul of Tarsus were separated by the Holy Spirit 
and sent out as apostles on their first missionary journey from Antioch. Here's another interesting side note. Jesus had surnamed James and John, they were brothers, he had surnamed them Sons of Thunder. You can read about that in Mark 3, verse 17. And I've just put a little observation here. Some console and some thunder. There are diversities of gifts and ministries in the body of Christ. We're not all the same. God needs some sons of thunder. He also needs some sons of encouragement. <clears throat> some are given the ministry of mercy, the ministry of consoling, the ministry of encouraging. Others are giving the ministry of thundering out the word of God, prophecy, and warnings of judgment to come. It's not to say one is better than the other, or one is more spiritual than the other. There are diversities of gifts and ministries in the body of Christ. And Peter, in his letter, he talks about the manifold grace of God. It's not a singular grace. It comes in many, many different forms. Manifold grace. And so... We need all of the different forms of grace to bring the body of Christ to full maturity. And if the body of Christ is going to reflect the fullness of Christ, we need both sons of encouragement as well as sons of thunder. We need prophets. We need apostles. We need evangelists. We need pastors. We need teachers. We need some with gifts of administration. We need others with gifts of prophecy. We need others with gifts of healings. We need others with gifts of discernment. And that we will certainly see next time because we're running out of time and I'll, I don't want to start this next section and have to stop it midway. But just to give a little bit of an introduction now... <clears throat> In Acts 5, verses 1 to 11, we're going to study next time Ananias and Sapphira. They also sold a piece of property. Well, that's good. Everybody else was selling properties, selling land, selling houses, and bringing the money and laying it at the apostles' feet. However, they were hypocrites, they were deceivers, and they did something very deceitful. They sold their land, and then they lied about how much money they gained from the sale. They kept some of the money for themselves. Now, there was not anything wrong with that. What they did wrong was lie about it. We can only speculate why, and we'll get into that more next time. Maybe they were trying to make an impression that they were just as holy and just as dedicated as somebody like Barnabas, and so they sold their land, but they only gave part of it to the apostles, and they kept the rest for themselves. And their end was very, very tragic. And we will see next time how in the early church, not only did they have signs and wonders and miracles of healings and the lame walking, but we also have signs and wonders and miracles of two hypocrites that dropped dead in the middle of the church because they dared to lie to God, to the apostles, and more importantly, they lied to the Holy Spirit, with deadly consequences. So we'll wait till next time to turn our attention to Ananias and Sapphira, 
and then hopefully we can continue further along in Acts chapter 5. All of this, remember, is still taking place in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church is growing, but they're also beginning to experience some growth pains, and they will certainly hit a bump in the road in what's about to happen next in Acts chapter 5. More about that next time. Let's close in prayer as we finish off Acts chapter 4. Father, we thank you. We thank you in these last days you are raising up your church, a glorious church, a bride without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. You're raising up apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. You're raising up those who will stand boldly, even in the face of persecution, boldly speaking your word, and you, God, confirming that word with miracles, signs, and wonders. And Lord, you've never promised that we would be exempt from opposition and persecution. Quite the contrary, you promised all that live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. <clears throat> Help us to stand firm in our faith. Stand boldly, even in the face of opposition, as the apostles and the believers in the early church did. Help us to pray the way they prayed, till the place is shaken with the power of God, till we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we speak your word with great boldness. God, I pray that you would keep us filled with the Holy Spirit. You would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we would not get sidetracked and distracted with the cares and the things of this world and end up focusing all of our attention on money and buildings and building programs but help us to stay focused on the kingdom of God. And let us not neglect the poor and the needy, and help us to give generously to those causes that we can do just as they did in the early church, taking care of each and every one in the church <clears throat> so that there were none needy. All had their needs met because they lived in a community that was one heart, one mind, and one soul. God, we thank you and we praise you for the marvelous work of grace that you're doing in your people, in your church, in these last days. And we know that you will finish, you will complete, and you will perfect what you have begun, because you are both the author and the finisher of our faith. God bless each and every one in this Bible study tonight.